Today we're continuing our Christianity 101 series with a message answering that question, what is the church? Since the church is God's idea and should be done according to His will and in His purpose and in His way, I'm just going to start our message today by asking His help in prayer. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you help us to put aside any preconceived notion of what a church is, that you help us to put aside what the world would try to tell us the church is supposed to be or not supposed to be, and that you would help us to understand from your word, the Bible, what this entity called church is supposed to be about. Help us to answer that question in our minds. What is the church? so we can live according to your plan and according to your purpose for our lives. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. So today we're going to be starting out in Matthew 20, or 1929. You can flip it over uh, your bulletin and see all the scriptures that we're going to use today. And as you read through the Gospels, as I was studying for today's message, I was just kind of struck by the fact I'm really glad Jesus was a carpenter. And the reason for that is because Jesus would have been horrible as a salesman. When you look at the what he used to write, or excuse me, used to tell his disciples, he oftentimes portrayed life and believing in him the exact opposite of the way that most church growth experts would tell a pastor to grow his church. He, he, Jesus seemed to do the exact opposite. If you think about it, in promoting this new religious movement, Jesus follow, or promised his followers the following. He told them that they would often have pain. They would often have suffering. They would often suffer from social isolation and persecution. Not only that, Jesus said he came to turn son against father, daughter against mother, and even rip apart the family you were born into. That's not a very good sales pitch, is it? With a show of hands, how many people here, when you decided to become a Christian, looked at all that and said, yep, that's what I want? Probably not too many, right? Now, how many of you have experienced some negative consequences since you became a Christian? Probably all of us, right? And if you haven't yet, just wait, it's coming. The life of Jesus is usually thought about as God coming down and restoring that which is lost in the Garden of Eden. And that's very true. He gave us forgiveness of sins. He restored fellowship with God. And he even infused and baptized us with the Holy Spirit. These are all spiritual benefits that, that we enjoy as Christians and followers of Christ. But he also took care of us as we continue to live on this earth by giving us the church. There are many misconceptions about what church is supposed to be, and we, as we saw in the video that we watched. Many people believe that the church is just a building. That, that idea has been throughout the centuries, and you see this especially if you go to Europe or even um, over on the East Coast that have some of the oldest churches in existence right now, that these things are just monstrously huge built out of stones, meant to weather millennia of weather and, and, and elements. And that's what they thought that they had to do to honor God. But that's not what Jesus had in mind when he formed the church. 
Even today in modern America, many pastors have dreams of, of a huge church building worth millions of dollars, their own private bathroom next to their office. And they, they build these things in order to promote their vision of what ministry in the church is supposed to be and how they can serve their community. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. The world looks at a church as a bunch of deluded simpletons who can't manage to get through life without some type of crutch. And how somehow these, these people manage to even get themselves a tax-exempt status. And that, of course, is not what Jesus had in mind for his church. So what did he have in mind when we speak about the church? Throughout this series, I repeatedly said that your eternal life began when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. It's not my idea, or it's not some awesome thought I had. It's what Jesus taught us. We're to be living here on earth as we would in heaven. So let me ask you, how are we going to live in heaven? When you, if you close your eyes and think of heaven for a moment, what is your picture? Now I can say me as an introvert, heaven would be a 10,000 a 10, acre ranch where my nearest neighbor is 10 miles away and I can live on this ranch all by myself and not be bothered by people. That's me as an introvert thinking about heaven. Fortunately, God has a better plan than that. That might be an introvert's dream, but it's not the kingdom of God. In several places in the Bible, you see God pull back the veil and have us take a look inside of his kingdom and what it looks like. Every time they pull back that veil, what do you see? A full huge throne room. The Bible says that when John would look up into heaven, he saw multitudes of people. He said there were so many people crowded around God's throne, crying out to him and singing them that he could not even number them. And John was a well-educated man, so he could count past 10. There were hundreds and thousands and perhaps millions of people surrounding the throne of God. And it shows us the loving nature of God, that he's a father. He wants his family surrounding him at all times. But since we are living in eternal life right now, we're supposed to reflect that kind of attitude and that kind of sense of community here on earth. And we call that community the church. In the Bible, the New Testament was written mostly in Greek. And the Greek word for church is ecclesia, which means the called out ones. It's referring to people who are once stumbling around in the darkness that have been rescued and brought into God's wondrous light. That is the, the, the church and Bible meaning of that word church. And it's where we're going to start this morning. A few moments ago, I mentioned some of the negative consequences of following Jesus. Now let's look at some of the, the promises that he gave us in Matthew 19.29. Jesus tells us that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. What Jesus is telling us here is don't focus so much on your earthly life. 
Look forward to the one you will have with me. Although we are living our eternal life right now, much of that reward is still coming. So he's saying that what we may have lost in life, he is going to supply here on earth as a temporary earnest payment to what we are going to get in heaven. And that earnest payment is called the church. That means that the church is your new family. If you have lost family, he's going to give you a new one. And the Apostle Paul said this about Jesus and his church. In Ephesians 1, he said, And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in every way, everything in every way. In the Middle Ages, there was this king who had a huge, vast kingdom. One day during a meeting of his royal court, one of his advisors informed him that one of the outlying areas had begun a rebellion. They had, had gotten sick of being under this king, and they wanted to leave this kingdom. The advisors had sent out emissaries to try to bring back these, these rebellious people, but they were unsuccessful, and these emissaries were treated very poorly. The advisors told the king that he needed to raise an army. He needed to send that army over to that area and bring the king's justice to bear and kill the ringleaders of this rebellion. The king thought for a moment and said, I'm going to think about this overnight, and I'll give you an answer in the morning. The next morning, the entire royal court, all the advisors, all the rich people, all, the, all the, the bigwigs in the kingdom filled the council hall, waiting for the king's decision of what he's going to do with these, these rebels. And the trumpets sound, the king walks in, and he gives his answer. He said, I want you to send the army, but I don't want you to send the army with, for justice. I want you to send the army to escort this entire village Back into, my, back into the castle here, where I will meet with them. And his advisors immediately began to protest. They said, King, King, these people are rebelling against you. You've you got to squash this immediately. You have to, to bring your justice to bear here. And the king said, No, just follow my command. And so they did. They raised up a small army. They sent it there. Three weeks later, the army marches in, 150 very scared-looking villagers. And they bring him to the great banquet hall. And the king meets them there. The sound of trumpets, the army backs out, and the king is alone with these rebellious subjects. Inside, the, inside this banquet hall are tables filled with food and drink. And the only people in there are the villagers, the servants, and the king. The king stands before his throne and he says, Why do you want to rebel against me? Why do you want to rebel? Let us sit down and eat and drink and be merry and we can discuss your grievances. You're not just my subjects. You're part of my family. And I want to honor you as such. Let's sit down now and feast and talk about this. Now some people might think that this king is dumb. This king is, is, is going to lose his kingdom if he keeps doing this. To, to rebels. Oftentimes in human thinking, rebellion is something that should be squashed immediately and so forcefully that nobody would ever think to rebel against the king again. 
But this king is God. We are his rebellious subjects. And, as he, and he has brought us into a feast of love and made us members of his family. The church is the earthly fulfillment of that promise that Jesus gave us to receive a thousand times that which we lost through following him. Does that put a church in a little bit of a different perspective for you this morning? Does that give us something to live up to in how we treat one another? Before I became a Christian, the only people I had in my life that were spiritual in any way were my grandparents. They were very serious Lutherans. Anytime the church needed help, a potluck, uh, a benevolence ministry, they showed up. They were always there, and they showed up every time something came up. And because I had a very tumultuous upbringing, because my parents split when I was five, and they had relationships that just weren't any good, I got tossed back and forth within the family. So I never really understood what family meant. I, I did not have that. That's why I became probably such a, an extreme loader and, and introvert that I, I can be today if I allow myself. But when I got saved, I started attending the church every time the doors were open. My early mentors told me that is critical to your spiritual growth, is to show up every time the church is open. And when I did that, I started to see what a family is supposed to be like. People wanted me around. I couldn't believe it. They actually wanted me around. As obnoxious as I was, as many silly questions as I would pose, they still wanted me around. They still showed love to me. If I wasn't there, they would call and see why I wasn't there. It wasn't that they were putting me under their thumb. They were generally, genuinely concerned. When my car broke down, they gave me rides. When we needed financial help, we were, stuff was poured into our, our bank account to help us out. They really took care of us in those early days. In the beginning of a new convert's eternal life, that's what the church needs to be. When I came here five years ago, I often said that you can't be angry with an infant because they mess their diaper, because that's what babies do. We're supposed to gather around these people and love them and help them continue in their walk with Christ. That should be like that with any new Christian. I was disturbed these past few weeks when I was reading critical articles about some famous people who have said that they have given their hearts to Christ. In the last six months we've read, or year about, we've read articles about how famous people like Conway Ye West or Brian Head Welch, who used to be the lead singer of Corn, or Justin Bieber have given their hearts to Christ. And because they, they exist in such a glaring media spotlight, anything that they do that doesn't look Christian, the media explodes out and makes them look like the worst person in the world. That shouldn't be the way it is. You know who the harshest articles are written by? Christians. Would they say the same thing to the poor person in their, in their congregation that is struggling with their faith in Christ who might stumble and all of that? No. They're toddlers in the faith. They're children in the faith. They're going to ask seemingly dumb and silly questions. They're going to make a mess of things. They're going to talk out of turn. They're going to call you in very inconvenient times to get them out of very awkward circumstances. 
When I got saved, I, was, I joined a men's group. And I got woken up at 1 a.m. to pick up a newer Christian that I was in men's group with from the bar after he got really, really drunk. And I drew, as I drove him home to make sure that he was going to be safe, he threw up in my car. Now, why did he call me? I mean, he was there with his drinking friends. Why didn't he let them bring him home? Or why didn't he drive his car home? Because in, even in his drunkenness, he said, I have this family over here who I know will take care of me. Even in his drunkenness, he thought about his spiritual family and made a decision to call one of them rather than drive drunk or letting other drunk people drive him home. A few days later, he apologized profusely at the men's group. I didn't tell anybody about it, but he brought it up and apologized. He received love and forgiveness from the men's group and acceptance with some stern counsel about it, especially about throwing up in my car. But he learned from that, and he never drank again. Those kind of situations, we look at that, he stumbled and fell. No, those are spiritual wins. Yeah, he did something dumb. He, 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 he made a mess. Yes, he remembered the pe- but then he remembered the people who would love him no matter what. So I say, yes, that is a spiritual win. He learned from it, and he grew in it. And he became a better Christian because of it. That's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a hospital for the sick, not a mausoleum where we compare our tombstones one with another. Who has the nicest tombstone? We're supposed to be a hospital for the sick. The living church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a safe place from the evil world where God has placed you into a family where you can learn and grow and serve others. Amen? And just like your earthly family has some structure built into it, God's family also has some structure in it, and it defines roles within the family. In natural family, you have mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, maybe even godparents. Ideally, all these people provide a structure that help you support and raise up godly children to be physically, emotionally, and spiritually mature. That's the, the idea of what a family is supposed to have. The church is the same. We have a structure that God has given us. So let's look at that. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 27. We're going to look at the structure. I'm going to read a little extended portion just for clarity, but we're going to really focus on the first two verses here. Now you are, are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a member of it. And the church has, excuse me, and in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, and those with gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greatest gifts. Let me give you a quick explanation of, what, of this part of the Bible. You want to learn more about the church the next three chapters are going to show you God's plan for the church. 1 Corinthians 12 is the structure of the church, 
and how it flows in and through the Holy Spirit. Chapter 13 is at the center of these two chapters. It's the core principle of the church, which is agape love. That's the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. All those things, that is the core of the church, that agape, self-sacrificing love we are to have for each other, just as God has that for us. Chapter 14 gives some guidelines about how a church worship meeting should be conducted. Now, chapter 12 shows us the foundation of the church is built on three core spiritual positions, the apostles, the prophets, and the teachers. And in the church, and it says, in the church, God has appointed first. And that Greek word for first here, just for clarity, I'm being very specific here, means first in number, not in position. It's like saying first you take an egg out of a carton, then you crack it, then you make an omelet. It's not saying that the the egg is first in priority, it's just laying out the steps in the way things should happen. I'm being very specific because a lot of people get this wrong, and they run around calling themselves apostles because they think that's the highest spiritual position they can attain. Now, an apostle is an apostle is a founder of a church. Paul is the most famous example in Scripture because he founded more churches than anyone else in the first century. He, Paul would move into a community. When you read the book of Acts, you would see his pattern. Move into a community. Preach the word for a few years. Train up the converts. Appoint a few elders to continue the work. And then leave to go form a church somewhere else. That's a brief definition of an apostle's work. The modern version we'll talk about next week, which is called being a missionary. That would be a, uh, an example of a modern apostolic ministry. The second position is that of prophet. Prophets were raised up to give direction to the church as it grew so people would know the will of God for their church. They were in leadership. They would encourage things like spiritual development by modeling and exhorting people into deep prayer lives. That was the role of a prophet. The third position that God said, the third thing that came along, was that of teacher. A teacher is concerned about sound doctrine and instilling that within the new convert. They are the glue that holds the church family together and keeps it from flying off into bad beliefs and heresy and, and false beliefs. So these are the three positions that existed early in the first century church, and they were the foundational positions. And they are the, still the foundational positions in the church today. Now, when you look at these verses and you think about how we look at church leadership today, what position isn't talked about in this verse at all? What's my title? Pastor, right? It's, 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 isn't that odd that we call everything pastor now and it's not even mentioned in, in the first or early part of what the early church had? It took about 10 years or so after this was written that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus with very similar instructions. Jesus, Jesus, or, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 4, or 13, he said it was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And then he gave them their mission statement. The reason why he's appointing all these people. 
He said, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Some of you may have heard, if you've been around a little while, you have heard something called the fivefold ministry, and it's based from these verses right here, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Except for this one verse in the Bible, the Greek word, if you do what's called an Englishman's search of the Bible, which if you have this, it's a big book, and you could take any word found in the Bible and look and see everywhere it's said in the Bible. So if you do an Englishman's search on the word pastor, the only place in the Greek or Hebrew language that it is seen in relationship to a spiritual position is right here in Ephesians. And the word poimen means shepherd. It means someone who takes care of sheep. But it is a great representation of what a modern pastor's job is. I'm not demeaning the the position of pastor. I'm just trying to frame it correctly, biblically. Pastors have three primary um, missions in life. And you can see a lot of that in Psalm 23. But the first thing they do is protect the flock. Now, when I was um, talking about going into the ministry and talking about going and actually being a senior pastor, my first pastor, Nelson Clare, called me. And he said, you know what, I have, he's been, he had been retired for probably about 15 years at that point, and said, you know what, I have about 10 boxes in my basement full of pastor books that you can have for free. He goes, this, this is like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of books. And he said, I also have three paintings, and I know you'll love these paintings because you're always looking at them in my office. And they represent what a pastor is supposed to be. And I brought them here today. These are actually hanging in my office at the parsonage. This shows the pastor's first job, which is to protect the flock. If you can see it, it's a pastor driving away wolves with his staff that are trying to attack the sheep. That's the pastor's first job. In modern way of looking at it, it's keeping false teachers away from the flock. It's helping minister to individuals and, and telling them that you may have some unhealthy people in your life you have to get rid of, or maybe you're listening to a, a teacher that isn't really teaching you sound counsel. This is part of our job is to drive away those wolves. The next thing that a pastor does in a modern church is lead the flock. Pastors are to lead the flock. We are to seek God, understand the direction that God wants to lead us in, not where I want you to go, but where God wants you to go. Trust me when I say sometimes that is a, a very challenging thing for a pastor to discern where I want to go versus where God wants to go. But this is part of what a pastor does, is he leads. He leads us in Psalm 23, it would say Jesus or God leads us in the paths beside still waters that is part of a pastor's job to lead his congregation in such a way that they grow into things of God and make a difference in their community. The third thing that modern pastors do 
And this takes up probably most of the time is tend the sheep. Most of the time that we receive phone calls is because somebody needs help with something. Maybe they have a spiritual question. Maybe they need prayer over the phone or a visit. But this is a lot of actually what Pastor Roger does when he does his visitation ministry. And the, in the uh, you can't read it probably from where you're at. It says exhorter there. But it's talking about giving counsel in times of need and telling people what the will of God is for them and gently leading them again besides those paths of still water, restoring them and, and keeping them in and strong in their faith. So that's the third thing that a pastor does in the modern church. The unfortunate thing here in the 20, late 20th and early 21st century here is that we've taken the entire five-fold ministry and crammed it into that one-term pastor. Biblically speaking, I just showed you what a pastor is supposed to be. And the problem with this is that we started calling people pastor who have no interactions with people at all. I was looking at some larger church websites and saw they had pastors of administration. They had pastors of technology. They had pastors of finance. And I'm reading that and I'm going, what are they, minister to QuickBooks? I'm like, what do they pray over their computers every morning? I mean, those, role, those aren't roles that need a pastor. A pastor tends sheep, not computers, right? And I know it's, it's probably slicing very tightly here. And it's a little bit of a, I admit, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. I admit that. But it does bear mention this morning. Our human nature, sometimes we strive for a title. But you don't want the messy responsibility that goes with the title. And the title of pastor means you deal with people. And you deal with the messiness that goes with people sometimes. But whatever title you give them, a church leader's role is very well defined. We talked about that a moment ago. A pastor's job is to prepare God's people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure, or excuse me, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that um, the modern church makes, is they think that all the ministry, and it seems to, to really be strong in the older denominations, but they think that all the ministry of the church belongs to the pastor. He's the only one that does ministry. But that goes against what we just read here in Ephesians, doesn't it? Ephesians says that the pastor is to equip God's people for works of service. That doesn't mean we can't do it. It just means our primary job is to be your trainer, to be your coaches, to help you. It's one of the biggest lies of the enemy that he has put upon the church to, to hinder its growth and influence in the culture is to believe that only the pastor does ministry. Let me frame this a little differently. If everybody's sitting out here listening to me this morning is just sheep and you're not supposed to do anything and the enemy wants to destroy our flock, who does he take out? Me. That's all he has to do is strike the shepherd and the flock scatters, right? The Bible says that. That's why Jesus structured the church differently than worldly organizations. 
Because if he's going to take out this church and we're a healthy church founded on a biblical model, he has to take out every single person here. Right? Jesus set up the New Testament church filled with people growing in faith and exercising their gifts. So this devil has dozens of targets. And if one of us falls, it would be tragic. But it's not like putting all your eggs in one basket and expecting the pastor to do it all. Pastors, as well as the rest of the position in God's family, are support personnel meant to minister inside the family while everyone else is out there helping people to come in and join our family. Does that make sense? All right. So we're going to close today looking at the briefly at the mission of the church. Within the Assemblies of God, we recognize that we have four directives from God that we as a church are supposed to be doing. They are called our four reasons for being. Number one is to be an agency of God for evangelizing the world. The church exists to proclaim the name of Jesus to the world. And they use the example of Acts 1.8 to do that. That we will be witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. The second one is to be a corporate body in which we can worship God. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, verse 13. The third one is to be an entity that matures God peop God's people into the image of Jesus. And you see that? We already read it in Ephesians 4.11. The fourth reason for being was added a few years ago. And this is to be a people who demonstrate God's love and compassion to the world through mostly a benevolence-type ministry. Those are the four reasons that this church exists or that any church exists to do these four different things to the world and show them the love of God through Jesus Christ. I would summarize this last part of the message in teaching this morning by saying that the mission of the church is to show the world the transforming power and love of Jesus Christ as seen through the people who call themselves his disciples. That answers the question, what is the church. Amen? Amen? I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment today, but do we have any questions about today's message? I know a lot of people don't like speaking out in public, so if you do, please shoot me an email, give me a call. I'll be happy to answer them. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, that even through following you and when I lost a large part of my family because they didn't want to be involved with the Bible thumper, you gave me a new one, a better one, a healthy one, one that proclaimed Jesus Christ to me and helped me grow in the things of God. Father, I ask, Lord, that you just create that, that desire in each one of us to know you, to serve you, and to be just like you in our dealings with every person we come in contact with. Lord, the time is growing short. We don't have time to play church games. We have to be all in when it comes to the mission of what the church is supposed to be doing in these last days. So, Father God, I just ask, Lord, that you just place this mission within each one of our hearts to grow in the things of God and to see the mission of your church 
continue to push back the gates of hell in this community. Lord God, I thank you. I bless your people now. And I ask, Father, that you just make us a church that brings a smile to your face, Lord. Lord God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.